0: So next May marks the 175th birthday of the venerable American Medical Association, which broadly claims to represent a third of all doctors, but half their membership are students and residents. And I believe it had its best days fighting big tobacco, but that was 1986. And here's why I think its best days are sadly behind it, because the AMA has sadly become irrelevant to most doctors. If you look at the actual numbers, about 88% of all doctors Agree with my humble opinion by not belonging to the AMA, not a third, even in Medical City, Houston, Texas, where I'm from. Last I checked the numbers were 11% of the local docs are AMA members. And remember, half of those are students and residents and they don't get a vote on membership. They got to join. A recent blue ribbon panel of geniuses assembled by the AMA recommended seven changes to fix the fee for service model, declaring it broken. Now, nobody listening to this show is really going to disagree unless you're with a big hospital or big insurance because they rely on volume centric transaction care to make their model work. But I digress. Okay, seven changes by the geniuses to redo fee for service. And what the AMA suggests in this manifesto nicely describes direct contracting. You hear me talking about that all the time on this show. Their ideas never once interestingly mentioned the patient nor the employer who are paying for all these ideas. But any big fix to a fee for service has to include doctors and payers employers, and the patients. Everybody has to win with a solution or it is by definition a patchwork, not an answer. It's wallpapering a rotted wall. Anyway, direct contracting makes winners of all three of those parties, and my personal experience is how great direct contracting is is now four years old as an employer and as a consumer. It's a true attraction and retention tool for me and my company, and it's not only the perfect tool, free healthcare, but it's so much bigger than my company culture I used to think was so important because my team now feels safe first and foremost with free healthcare. Okay. Let's go to back to the seven recommendations. I'm digressing again. They're so dumb. I'm just going to read a couple of them. First of all, this is from the AMA. First of all, do not secretly reduce payments to PCPs. Well, that's cute. Are they paranoid much about the RUC, the RUC? Let's skip right down to seven. Cause it's kind of cute too. Seventh. Financial considerations should not be the only factor. Most PCPs are driven by intrinsic motivations to deliver excellent care and help their patients live healthy lives. So the bottom line, guys, is these seven perfectly described direct primary care, direct contracting with surgery centers, with labs, with imaging, and with pharmacies. So just, they're not asking for more advice, but if I could be so bold as to offer some, quit making these lofty recommendations, blue ribbon panels, and see what's under your nose, AMA. Your big idea is already out there just by the people on my show, that's 25 million to 30 million employees strong are enjoying this direct contracting digital first care. And that's just from the CEOs, as I said, on this show, I'm betting there's a lot more than 30 million out there because I keep finding more. This monthly subscription model has an unstoppable future where everybody wins. The patient, for sure. The doc, for sure. The employer and outcomes, for sure. As our guest today will attest to, I can hear her head nodding in the air. And the healthcare costs drop like a lead balloon in the ocean for employers too, when you skip these big middles that are in the way, bloating everything up. And every employee gets a significant raise overnight is my favorite feature. No more premiums or deductibles or co-pays. I took the Brookings Institute figures, and this is kind of hard to do on on a show, but I'm gonna just walk you through some numbers very quickly. If you take 1,430 a month, that the average employee is paying for their health care by direct contracting, and you put that in their pocket now, for every 1,000 employees, this is a significant raise of 1,430 a month is a stimulus of $34 million for the local economy, because we know from economists when you put that kind of stimulus into a local economy, it has a 2x effect. Now, if a 1,000 people is $34 million into an economy, imagine what 25 or $30 million is, and we're talking somewhere between $850 billion and a trillion dollar stimulus with no new laws, no marches, no pitchforks, no lobbying, no petitions, no anything, just market forces sidestepping the bigs and their bloat as a middleman and chief preservationist of what we call transaction care, $850 billion freaking dollars annually. And here's the cool thing. It's evergreen. It keeps popping up year after year after year. So it's the first to raise healthcare costs and inflation hasn't stolen from what Dave Chase calls the stolen American dream for most workers. Imagine our economy if everyone got a raise via free healthcare. AMA, your membership is at 12% of all docs for good reason. The membership is only 10% of your revenues of your 2020 annual report. I dug into it. Your chief revenue source is creating 12,000 CPT codes and licensing it out. Name one other greater source of misery for the very doctors you represent. They're now becoming code slinging EHR mandated secretaries with white coats and you offer burnout seminars. Burnout only goes away when you get rid of CPT codes, not with resiliency seminars, because the moment your meditation or your belly button staring or your counseling session ends, you're back in the coal mine again, slugging it out with your EHR system that makes you a lot of money, AMA. The burnout will go away when we throw this cash cow where it belongs in the circular file and replace it with direct contracted care. Now remember, this new way of care doesn't need to bill and code or pre-authorize the thing. It's based on monthly subscriptions paid by employers. So hmm, AMA for or against direct contracting, which dumps codes in the trash heap of history. Okay, AMA, I'll lay it up a little bit, but I just want to say, as an outsider, I can call you what you are, which is a dinosaur completely out of touch with your mission to promote the art and science of medicine, and so public health improves. Direct care actually does both of those things. Join our movement to see real change in fee for service. Okay, you're not supposed to have a favorite child, or in my case today, a favorite guest, but Katie Taleno is definitely on my short list, and that is why this is her third invite in 18 months. And when I say shortlist, I don't mean entitling people, because she is tiny people, but because she's mostly mighty, mighty, mighty in this field of direct primary care and direct care and changing everything. The talented Ms. Salento is a former nun and is a Harvard-trained epidemiologist and later worked for five different Senate staffs on the healthcare policy beat. And HHS, just as an aside, is the only agency on the planet that spends $100 billion a month. So there's no peer in in the world for spending power in the US for sure. And for our last president, Katie was in the inner circle White House health policy as an advisor. She put the transparency bug and more in our last president's ear because he was the first one not owned by the bigs. It didn't exactly help his reelection. All the past presidents needed that reelection payola and could never push the bigs around. But Katie was in the right place at the right time with the right leader. And now hospitals are forced into transparent pricing and it's all the rage to read about it. It's just fascinating stuff. And in six months, it's gonna be even more interesting because the big insurers are in that same awful bind. The bigs are not happy about all this transparency breaking out everywhere. She's extremely modest about being the spark in turning over this opaque apple cart, but yes, it's on Katie. We love this guest. So today, Katie is a transparent and uber-creative benefits advisor, partnering with another favorite child of mine, Rachel Means. Two human spitfires every employer should have in their corner, only if you enjoy uncovering meaningful buried treasure inside your second largest spend, should you call them. Okay, welcome back, Katie.
1: Hi, Ron. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm glad to be uh, your favorite horse in the stable.
0: Yeah, Uh, horse in the stable. Well, you're more like a uh, Arabian, a rare Arabian, you know, uh, champion. That's what I would, you're not just like any horse. Uh,
1: Okay. If you say so. Thanks.
0: Hey Katie, um, there's a lot going on right now. First of all, do you have anything you want to comment on what we talked about here?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, one of my favorites is how they use the word resiliency when they try to talk you out of your burnout. Like you're just not resilient enough. If only you were more resilient, then you would love, love, love those EHRs and all that time spent billing and chasing patients for surprise bills. I mean, really, it's so outrageous. I think that direct contracting as you say is the future and if i never see another cpt code it'll be too soon so um, you've got it right on we're going to get rid of all these middlemen
0: it's it's um it's life enhancing when you just can sh- sh- and you you get to forget all these acronyms you've had to memorize macra and well you don't have to forget hipaa but you get to forget a lot of acronyms that are basically created by this middleman that says we have to learn how to be more efficient at being giving crap care.
1: Exactly. RVUs and CMS. And yeah, it's true. Um, It is, this is the future. And, you know, I I love all these sort of trade associations and, um, you know, the the associations of the middlemen, you know, the PCMA is the PBM association. And then the blues all have their own federation and um, AHIP and the insurers all these guys, they don't know what to do with themselves. I mean, I don't know how they justify themselves to their members because they're losing everywhere, which is kind of awesome, kind of fun to watch from the outside. It
0: is. It's is it's great to watch from the front row in this of this show. Um, so, Katie, here are the hospitals playing games already with their mandate. Um, we had Leon Wisniewski on, and he'll be on the show in a couple of weeks after this show airs. And he said that in, I don't know if it's Rhode Island or New Hampshire, in Texas, we don't pay attention to states that are smaller than our counties But one of those states had a hospital in it that was 21 million lines of Excel spreadsheet code to basically mask the information so that the average person couldn't get the uh, hospital rates. Are they starting to game the system by A, not participating, and B, uh, playing games with their transparency rules?
1: So I think the vast majority of hospitals are not complying with the regs right now. I know that I have filed complaints to uh, CMS about a number of them in my local area, but um, and I encourage everyone to do that. So if you see non-compliance, we should flood that complaint line and, and just make them too busy. But I do think that most of them are not complying, and probably one of the main reasons is that the enforcement authority is sort of a joke. So if they get taken down by HHS, (laughs) taken down means I I have to pay 300 bucks a day for being out of compliance. I mean, that's basically what they they pay for Band-Aids in a day. So um, I think that that's a huge problem. And that's one of the things I was hoping, looking for in the recent executive order from President Biden. I was really hoping that he would give direction to HHS to beef up those enforcement authorities, but he did not. Um, So I'm not sure that we're going to see a lot of change, although I'm just hopeful that the momentum of price transparency and the movement of it toward um, toward greater compliance in the insurer space, because they have to start complying come January 1. Hospitals had to comply with their rule this past January. Insurers have to comply with their rule this coming January. And uh, the insurers are under a a more stiff penalty, and so um, they actually are Going to comply, I believe, and they will out the hospitals' negotiated rates, and that's the big secret sauce at hospitals. I thought, I I guess they thought they could, if they hit it for a year, they'd gain something. With respect to the, you know, spreadsheets and files that they're dumping on their websites, I actually think that's fine. You know, your average consumer, your patient out there who's trying to figure out their their price with their plan, they're not the main audience for those spreadsheets for those. You know, machine readable files. And I actually would rather have a bigger, more complex file that has more information. Um, Even if that hospital is trying to confuse me with too much information, I assure them they are not going to succeed at confusing us with too much information. There are, all these really interesting vendors out there, either vendors that used to exist and that now have been empowered to grow even more with this new data, or vendors that are springing up to consume this new data, scrape it off all these websites and assign you know um, artificial intelligence and other tools to read it all out of these very complex spreadsheets. I don't think these hospitals are gonna stump these vendors and they're creating these beautiful consumer tools and employer tools for self-funded employers to help steer patients and steer volume. And that was the purpose. So just because there, you know, there's a consumer tool that's required um, out there to be created by the insurers that, and and I think that will be, you know, helpful for consumers. But really, most consumers are going where their plan directs them through its network, where a doctor refers them. And so that's why it's really important that the dpc practices that are steering patients and other primary care practitioners that are steering patients and employers that are steering patients they have access to these machine readable files no matter how complex they are i think it's great that they have it and um, and i would urge hospitals to dump all the data they want they're not going to stump anyone um and so i think it's better better to have more than less I, I'm worried about the hospitals that aren't doing anything and that are not putting out the infor- any information or substandard information, more than the ones that are putting out too much.
0: Yeah, there's uh, 2,500 in Wisniewski's database that he's been able to find, and he's been able to shame dozens more into giving the information by saying everybody in your municipality is doing it but you. Um, you want to be all alone out there. So he said they are, out of shame, starting to jump into the uh, compliance, but um, you know, I look at Keith Smith, who was one of our first guests, and he has hundreds of surgical procedures that are plainly priced, complications, every, anesthesia, facility, it's all in there. It's a one-bundled price deal, and he's been doing it since 1994. And so this isn't so complicated where you can't do it if you're a hospital, but what are the new regulations for the insurance companies? If the hospitals have 300 different procedures they have to present, what does that look on the insurance side, which has like, God, my gosh, tens of thousands.
1: Yes, uh, you're right. The insurers have three machine readable files that they have to dump monthly onto a public website. One of them is, it, it. it's basically their negotiated rate. So all the rates that they've negotiated with every healthcare provider, every hospital, every doctor's practice, every radiology facility, every lab, all of it. And So whatever they've contracted with, anyone they've contracted with, those contracted rates have to be posted. So that includes every employer self-funded plan that counts as a plan that has to put this information out. So we have um, the carriers. If if your carrier is your administering entity for a self-funded plan, which I don't recommend, by the way, folks, don't do that. But if that's the kind of plan you have. Um, their carrier is gonna to have to put out that information. If you're um, an individual patient and you're insured, let's say on an exchange plan or in the small group market, the carrier is going to, to be putting out this information. And if you're a self-funded plan that uses a third-party administrator, an independent third-party administrator, which is certainly what, what I prefer to do um, when I'm building plans for, for clients, those third-party administrators, those TPAs are the ones that are, that are putting together Uh, that tool and that file. They know what they're paying, what their negotiated rates are. It's a little complicated when you get into a reference-based pricing plan. That gets very complicated quickly. But these TPAs that work with, you know, sort of Medicare-based prices on their plans, um, they're doing a great job of coming up with innovative ways to comply with this. So that's the first file, all your negotiated rates. The second file is your out of network payment, the average that you've paid out of network to every provider. So if you're a big, let's say you're your United Health Group. So for all the doctors and facilities that you don't have a contract with, they're not in network, then you're still paying them. You're paying them an out of network allowed amount. And so this is called the allowed amounts file. Well you can't you can't have a specific allowed amount. You don't always have the same one. Sometimes it depends on the city that the doctor is in. Sometimes it depends on the size of the group. It could depend on many, many things. So you may pay 270 different allowed amounts to the same doctor or the same imaging center um, over a course of a year. And so what this file does is it says, you have to tell us what did you actually pay on average to that doctor? And if you didn't see that doctor, if you didn't pay that doctor very often, like let's say it's, you know, um, let's say it's someone that you haven't paid for very many patients. You, you only made five payments to this doctor as a, as a carrier, as a health plan. That's fine, you have to list those five then. So you just, you either put your average or you put your last 10 um, payments Uh, you know, just historical claim data is really what this is. It's historical payments. What did I pay to this guy? And that isn't perfect, because it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna pay that in the future, but it gives you a good idea of what the range is. So that's machine readable file number two. And the last file has to do with all the net prices that were paid for prescription drugs. This is really, really important and disruptive. And I think it was a little unexpected. It wasn't actually in the proposed rule when it came out from the Trump uh, administration. And it came out in the final rule, this third file, of drug prices, net of rebates, discounts, and all the secret sauce that, you, you know, these PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit managers and pharma companies and carriers all cook up together um, so that everyone gets paid well and they keep raising list prices on patients so that their cost sharing is more and more. This will be extremely helpful for innovative self-funded employers and their benefits advisors to really find out who's getting the best deal and how to steer volume to the best pharmacies, the best PBMs, um, and and the best drugs if there are choices clinically.
0: Katie, I'm trying to imagine you sitting in the room when Trump is first elected and saying, if you want to do the right thing by healthcare, there's a lot you can do with transparency. And I would imagine that he's going to say, "Well, since you're the only doctor in the room, well, you know, what are your, your ideas? Uh, and I know that you like to give credit to all the regulators and all the downstream people that Maybe you started the ball rolling and maybe they made all this happen in such an intelligent way, but did you, from the early days, get everything you wanted on the transparency side with what you're seeing roll out now?
1: Um No. I think I think we got a lot done and truly, truly, it took a village, honestly, within the administration. Um, It is true that the White House staff have the ability to start things rolling, but we don't actually do work. I mean, who are we kidding? We sort of, you know, berate and beat down the agencies and make them do the work. But we had a really willing agency. I think there were all the usual arguments um, that are raised against price transparency by all the smartest people, you know, um, oh, it's gonna raise prices if everyone can see their prices or um, patients don't shop, so we shouldn't do this. Um, So you get all the usual arguments against and we heard them all. We heard them from agency staff, we heard them from outside trade associations, we heard them, from some of the economic advisors in the White House. You know, all the smartest people in the room came at us arguing against price transparency. And, you know, it was always so silly because I knew that the president, (laughs) the president would totally go for this. So everyone was gonna lose that argument as soon as he put his foot down, um, which he eventually did. And I mean, it really came down to a very simple message. Um, Healthcare is very, very complicated and healthcare financing is even more complicated but ending secret healthcare prices is a winning message and anyone who is against that just sounds corrupt and so there's no way around that and the president saw it immediately the very first time he heard about the idea he was totally sold. So he really he really drove it and it and, and at times we had to you know go back to him and make him you know <laughs> drive it again <laughs> remind him that you know hey we're getting some obstruction. could you just put your foot down again and he would put his foot down again and pick up the phone and so he really drove it himself.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. Is there a um, possibility that past presidents were, so in the pockets of the lobby called Big Healthcare that they could, they would never dream of taking these guys on.
1: Well, I think what really happens in sort of the healthcare Swampian policy circles in DC is that we are totally focused on government and government spending and government healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, exchanges. We're very focused on that, but honestly, you know, there's a, there's a lot that can be done with the Medicare and the Medicaid programs. Medicaid, it's a little bit hard because it's it's administered by the states and there's a lot that you have to do in 50 different states. Um, so Medicaid policy can be a little challenging. Medicare, of course, um, you, can, you can achieve a lot in the Medicare space, but it's very slow. It's a slow program and that's probably appropriate because it affects so many people and it's such a huge market actor. You have to be very careful. But with employer-sponsored care, nobody ever pays attention to that. I can tell you Ron, I'm always shocked at how much basic education I have to do with Hill staffers or even members of Congress or um, very senior political officials um and it's not because i'm so special or because i know so much it's just i started reading and learning and and i wanted to pass that on what i was learning and um and i wanted to share it i mean we we passed marty mccary's book around um around the white house and hhs and honest to god it wasn't until after everyone read that book i literally like sent them the free version and made everyone read it um and that that we started winning this argument and folks started getting on board because they saw they got out of their sort of DC swampian, you know, the industry says this and and that industry says that, that kind of mentality and started seeing it from the employers and the patient's perspective and taking their side. Everyone gets into government because they want to make a difference. And they really want to help people. but we get so, um, I guess distracted by how complicated everything is that we start to think that we can't change anything and that everything has to be done on the margins. And this, you know, Medicare demonstration project is the only way to change policy. No, there are things that we can do with ERISA, which is the federal law that governs employer health plans. Um, and and in the regular individual and small group insurance market now, because the ACA put all that into HHS, HHS's purview. So there are things that we can do in these commercial markets that we could never achieve um, in the larger Medicaid or Medicare space, but it requires knowing how employer-sponsored care works and how, you know, looking under the hood of a your typical off-the-shelf carrier plan, which frankly, most policy wonks in DC never have done, they don't really know it. So we had to really learn and teach ourselves and bring in experts and have big companies come tell us their problems and small companies tell us their problems and innovative benefits advisors and Health Rosetta like Dave Chase came and talked to us um, and told us, hey, you really need to focus on ERISA. So this was all a learning curve for everybody.
0: Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, Marty McCary has a new residence in Texas now, so we've got two centers of gravity, Maryland and Austin now for him. Glad to have him down here. Um, So let's talk for a second about what President Biden just did this week, which is a 72-point presidential executive order that talks about FTC and justice, getting their act together so they can start breaking up some of these, not, not exactly breaking up, but they're saying these monopolies are too big. You know, very few companies are representing a fourth of the healthcare economy. It's not right. And it looks like he is actually joining in the chorus line of what you started. So, how do you feel about that? Is he going far enough? Is he going too far? Are you shocked? Are you happy?
1: Well, it's a huge relief. I'll say that. Um, You know, I was certainly worried that the industry pressure. Would get to the Biden administration the way it gets to most administrations and most politicians, um, most members of Congress are very susceptible to this pressure. And as we say in Washington, you know, your local hospital is the usually the biggest employer in any congressional district. So it's no surprise that most politicians are scared to take on the hospital lobby. And um, and so I was worried that you know this administration would fall prey to those pressures, but. You know, I shouldn't have been as worried as I was because we really did identify something that is so totally nonpartisan. And again, like I said earlier, if you're a if you're for secret prices, you are corrupt. <laughs> and so the Biden team, you know, they they had a choice. Are we gonna are we gonna be the ones that backpedal on On secret prices in healthcare. And and so I was just really relieved that they doubled down on the Trump um, transparency rules and also on the Trump surprise billing principles. Um, They were required to do the surprise billing principles because Congress actually passed those in a law at the end of the year, I thought it was a Christmas miracle, banning surprise billing. Um, so that was really great. And also requiring brokers to disclose their secret compensation stream. So there are really good things that happened in that bill um, that got no attention because everyone was focused on COVID and um, and the post-election chaos. But I do think that it's it's really, a, a, it's a huge relief. So Team Biden this this week implement that there were two things that came out first was the executive order on competition in the american economy and it it goes through a bunch of industries like agriculture and transportation and a bunch of industries where there are anti-competitive practices and it tries to tamp down on those in their unique sort of biden-esque way but one of the um one of the areas is healthcare, and they really double down saying hey you know, I, Joe Biden, direct HHS to double down on the price transparency rules, to give full-throated support to them, um, and also to implement the surprise billing legislation that passed. So it doesn't say much more than that, and that was sort of the disappointment to me because they could have improved upon the transparency regs actually. Um, but I was so relieved that they didn't weaken them in any way, and and really just saying, "Hey, we're for this too." It it had to be a crushing blow to the industry interests that had hoped um, that they were going to have a more open ear in this new administration. So that's really great. The second thing that um, that the president did, President Biden did this week, was come out with a surprise billing. One of the first surprise billing regulations that implements that that law that Congress passed um and so it really just comes right out and it bans surprise billing in emergency settings and ancillary settings like um out of network anesthesiologists at an in-network hospital or ambulatory surgery center air ambulances You know, of course, the ground ambulances, by the way, got out of this. They managed to weasel their way out of the law last December, which is a disgusting display of lobbying. And so they are not included in the surprise billing ban. So everyone needs to really be careful when you're taking an ambulance um, because you can't control who's coming to get you and where they're going to take you. And they could surprise bill you badly. Um, and there's no protection. You and
0: I have a mutual friend, and a, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he's been a CEO of many hospitals. Yeah. And he told me some of the games that are played with surprise billing. And he said, one of the things most ER docs, most anesthesiologists don't work for that hospital. They're working for a private equity group, and they can surprise bill all they want because they control the market in many cities. Same with ambulances, same with air ambulances, same with a lot of different verticals that have basically rolled up and controlled the supply of those doctors so you think that doctor works for your emergency room but he has nothing to do with it other than he's a contractor and so he's out of network every time
1: that's exactly right and that is precisely the problem that this law the no surprises act was trying to solve and it bans surprise billing by those by those providers the air ambulances anesthesiologists, radiologists, pathologists, all those ologists that are out of network because they work for a private equity firm, or most of them actually don't work for private equity. It's just the private equity guys that surprise Bill the most, but they may work for a separate staffing firm um, or their own practice of anesthesiologists and they may have a monopoly and they, you know, they force their way into these hospitals because the hospitals have no other way to get anesthesiologists or whatever the ologist is. And, um, and part of their deal is that we're going to bill patients separately, and we don't care what, ne- what rates you've negotiated with their insurer. And so that practice is now illegal. And that is starting in January. And that is the greatest news ever. I mean, it's really, really good. You know, 9% of people who got surprise bills um, last year paid more than $400 for those bills. So, um, you know, when you think about, how many people have $400 or less in their savings, this can really be catastrophic for people who are living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, 40% of ER visits, Ryan, in the, in the past year resulted in an out-of-network bill. This is 40% of ER visits at an in-network hospital resulted in an out-of-network bill to one of these providers. So it's really- It was a gaming
0: of the system. It was, they literally were playing three-card Monty with the patient and with the uh, payer. They didn't, yeah. there's no way you can know uh, what you're getting into when you're sick and you're in distress and you're, you're at a high stress point in your life. You're not thinking to ask, are these guys going to you know, screw me over or not? And
1: if you did ask and they say, yeah, I'm not a network, what are you going to do? And that's how it is at every hospital in your town. Right? So it's not like you can do anything in that moment. And I, you would, you would be shocked and somewhat scandalized by the doctors that lobbied me on this to st- to not come after them for surprise billing it's you their know. business
0: model. It's their business model to get 8X Medicare. They love it.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Well, you did give some good information last time, and it came from Al Lewis of Quizify. And you said, if you keep your Battlefield consent card in your wallet, and of course I do, it says we're never going to pay anything more than two times Medicare for bill charges. Um, that was really one of the best episodes ever, just for that one little piece. Because uh, if, if, you have that, if you put that into the language and when you go, you're protected but now that we don't even need that anymore because of this outlawing of this uh, ridiculous practice.
1: Well, I would argue that we still do because it's not the hospital that's doing that surprise billing. It's the provider. It's the the doctor that's doing it. Usually the hospital is price gouging, whether you're in network or out of network, they're going to gouge you and overcharge you. They're going to upcode that ER visit to a, you know, level four or five five for giving you a stitch or something. And so it's still really important to use that battlefield consent. We put it on all our members' ID cards so that if mm-hmm. they're in an ER, they don't have to think about it.
0: Yeah, it's a great idea. Um, Katie, what is the future of direct contracting? Hold. Well, I got to tell you, I'm so excited. I just started doing the math a couple of months ago, and I realized that between you know maybe 15 of my guests I've had as CEOs on the show, we've got direct contracting is really scaling in the last couple of years. And we have certainly 25, but maybe closer to 30 or 35 million people that are direct contracting with these larger companies that are now in all 50 states. Um, this really, like DPC movement talks about 500,000 patients, but we're way bigger than 500,000. What what should this movement be called? I don't have a name for it, do you?
1: I like to call it clean health plans, right? They're clean of corruption, of middlemen, of secrecy. <laughs> you know, you think about clean energy Um so we could we could call it that but you're right it's kind of hard i also they also call them high performing health plans um so they are all those things they are clean they are high performing but the most important thing is that they create a really beautiful patient experience like you were talking about at the beginning of the show um yeah the
0: high performing plan doesn't stick with me because you can have a high performing turtle in a race and he's not going to win it but uh I, I i like the idea of clean that's a new idea that i haven't heard before but i've heard digital first I've heard a lot of interesting things. I just—it's—it's it's interesting. We don't have a an association. We don't have academics. Well, we have lots of academic studies of the savings downstream. We don't have really, um, you know, anybody counting head counting how many people are in this movement. It's—it's it's kind of happening on this show where we're figuring it out that this is really getting big. I mean, twenty five million—that's some serious head count.
1: Yeah, it is exciting, and you know, I think that the greatest thing is just getting out from under the billing code. And the, the doctors and the facilities that we talk to are happy to negotiate with us. Lots of them have never done anything like that before. We have to explain that, you know, no, we don't use Blue Cross or no, we don't, use right? Um, we have to explain this to them. And, and, you know, your average billing manager or office manager in a physician practice doesn't know anything about these health plans and you know, bringing them into the movement and into the revolution is always kind of fun. Um, sometimes it's hard to educate them um, and they're a little nervous, but as soon as you tell them, hey, you're going to get paid quickly. You're you're not going to have to chase patients for cost sharing, which is awesome. You know, it's going to be free to them. We're going to steer people to you and they're going to have a great experience. Um, so, they really they really like it. We've had really good experience doing it. There are some, I will say it's not, you know, it's not all a cakewalk. There are especially hospital systems that, you know, for them to make a change, to contract with an employer, if you think about like a drop down menu in an electronic health record that has, you know, Blue Cross or Aetna, or, you know, it's got all the carriers in there. Think of all the places in their billing bureaucracy and in their EHR um, design where there's a drop down and you have to pick the insurance plan. Every single one of those fields has to be recoded to add a new plan, like an employer plan that they've contracted with. Because if you don't add them across the system, the IT system, then when that patient calls the main scheduling line for that hospital system and tries to make an appointment, they're told that they don't take their insurance. So there's a lot of work that has to go on behind the scenes for hospitals to actually contract with an employer more than I, I mean, I think that they make it harder than it has to be. Um, I honestly think there are employers that would pay for the, you know, the, computer coders to to fix their to fix their it but you know sometimes they put that up as as a barrier i just got that in a california health system a couple of weeks ago saying oh we can't contact with you because it doesn't matter you know how worthy a cause it is and i know it's where the future of healthcare is going but we just don't we can't do it for this small amount of patients and so I don't want to oversell this as if it's so easy and it um, always happens because it, we're, this is still very much a movement in progress and it's going to yes, take a while. But we see <clears throat> the ones that- I'm we- going
0: to try something out on you and I'll see what you think of this idea. <clears throat> when you're talking to an employer for the first time, if they have a $10 million spend currently, and you start off the discussion with, if you had 2 million that you could count on in the next year. And the next year we're talking about maybe 4 million and that could go as high as maybe 6 million that's coming back to your company. Would you put that in more benefits to retain and attract? Would you put that into your so that you can perform for your investors? Or would you put that into the community like some companies like Rosencare have done and now turn around neighborhoods that are crime-ridden? What would you do with 2 million, 4 million or 6 million of found money? I think like taking it from 20,000 feet and having a big picture discussion And then, you know, Katie, you can deliver that 20% blindfolded by just the pharmacy. You can deliver the 40% with the pharmacy and the primary care. And then you throw in all the other imaging and all the other labs and uh, surgery. Now you're talking about the 60%. So you can, I mean, what Rachel and you call ripping the bandaid off, which is just go straight to 60 and don't pass go. Um, You can, I mean, there's no such thing as guarantees in life, but you can pretty much, you know, in your sleep, get them 20%, can't you?
1: Definitely in in our sleep we can get them twenty percent and we guarantee it. I mean we, I, I think our biggest marketing challenge certainly at All Better and I think all the benefits advisors out there doing this type of plan, um, our biggest marketing challenge is convincing people the HR directors or the C suite that it's not too good to be true. They they think yeah. we're trying to sell them something and get them to fire their broker or whatever and you know they just they just think we're selling. And OK,
0: so, so we need to start an association. The, yeah, we have to start an association. Kate, I'm sorry to interrupt you. If we have an association and we have all the enlightened HR directors and VPs, have all the enlightened CFOs sitting around the table with the, the Katie Talentos of the world and the um, others that are in this ecosystem and doing it, making a big difference, we have to we have to get our act together. We're, we're just all individual little molecules spinning and spinning and we don't have organization right now. This could be the beginning of something.
1: I think that's right. I know that Health Rosetta is trying to be that as well um, and trying to create some credibility around these types of plans. It's also true that I think one thing that will really help, and I am working on this, I hope you'll have me back when we're ready to launch it, but um, there are there are patient groups that, that are considering how do we grade employer plans with respect to patient access ability and experience, giving employers the great PR and the recruiting competitive advantage to have this seal of approval from patient groups, right. And so there's nothing out there grading employer plans, they all think that they offer the gold standard because they have some insurer logo on their cards
0: glass store for health insurance yes. for health employers yeah for the health plans i love it yeah. i love it well this is always amazing i would we could go all day i know because this is how our minds work but katie will definitely bring you back we've been on a six-month schedule so <laughs> i'm tickling you for christmas and uh, just cancel all your christmas plans and we'll have this conversation again because it's interesting it's always evolving what we talk about
1: it is it's exciting and i'd love to be back again and talk about all this stuff
0: yes i right, thank you well um it's again I always offer you this opportunity if you can fly a banner overhead. I remember what your last one was. What is the banner going to look like now?
1: Well, I still think it's important to end secret prices, make healthcare human again, and uh, you know, there are so many logos. And when it comes to healthcare, it's so bad. It's so bad that it's easy to demagogue. It's easy to come up with slogans, but the the implementing really beautiful patient experience and employer experience is hard, hard work, but it's, it's like the only thing I want to do. It's the only thing worth doing in healthcare these days.
0: Yes. I'm going to tease the next show that we're going to have with Rachel, your partner, (laughs) in that we are bringing a meat processing plant on that was the only one in the nation to not close one single moment during the pandemic. How did they do it? Using these techniques and strategies by having direct care on site. That is a Beautiful story. Imagine what that would look like for meat processing around the country, for food processing around the country, for, you know, fill in the blank manufacturing around the country. Nothing closed because they did this methodology. Beautiful story. Can't wait to, to share it with everybody on the show. Great. All right. Well, thanks again. And we'll get you back on in a few months. Thanks, Katie.
1: Thank you so much, Ron. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up. There's two things you can do for us. One. One. Go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.